0: Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Today, a peaceful rally is planned for Saturday by Pride Hamilton to counter hate. With that upcoming rally, how is City Council working to keep everything civil and safe? Also, there are concerns mounting around foreign actors getting ready to meddle in the upcoming federal election. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today, on the Bill Kelly Show, on 900 CHML. This weekend, uh, another demonstration is planned, but also a... uh, Friendly rally is planned at the same place, and they're both going to be happening in the forecourt of Hamilton City Hall. Uh, Peaceful rally being planned Saturday by Pride Hamilton, uh, with a number of other uh, individuals that are going to be involved uh, in this as well. It's uh, to counter hate. Cameron Croach is uh, with Pride Hamilton, of course, a community member, uh, joining us here on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Cameron, thank you for the time. Good to have you with us today.
1: Hi, Bill. Thanks for having me with you.
0: Uh, Talk to us about the decision to do this. Uh, This has been, um, as we know, a rather incendiary place over the last couple of weeks, talking about the City Hall forecourt. Uh, But you've decided that you're going to weigh into this. And and I I know on one level, uh, everybody and anybody should feel free to be able to walk down the street or in front of City Hall uh, without fear of being ridiculed, without fear of of being accosted. Um, And we're hoping that's going to be the case on Saturday.
1: Yeah, we decided to do this because allies and others reached out and said that they wanted to plan a rally and uh, would probably like to participate. And we thought this was a good, positive, peaceful, nonviolent way of sort of taking up space. And there'll be performances, there'll be kids activities, and the, the idea that it's a family-friendly event and um, not really something where there'll be political speeches. It's, it's meant sort of to be... Um, you know, performative in that way.
0: It's almost, from the description I saw, Cameron, almost like a a little festival that you're going to be doing, a a mini festival for a few hours.
1: Similar. Yes, there'll be some spoken word poetry, and uh, there'll be some performances there. And the idea is just to create a space where we can um, openly celebrate and have allies come out and show their support. Because a lot of people have been asking and saying things like, well, what can we do? And And, you know, I know that many groups have been going down to counter what have been normal um, activities in the forecourt with yellow vests and such. And so this seems like a way to begin to sort of um, show that solidarity and support from the wider community.
0: Yeah, unfortunately it's become normal. I wish uh, that we could say that was abnormal. Uh, And and maybe that will come to pass, obviously, with some of the things the council have done in the last little while and some of the restrictions, but we're going to get into that a little bit later on. Uh, you've got some friends who are going to be there. It's not just Pride Hamilton that's putting on the uh, the the, the, uh, the rally uh, that's going to be happening on Saturday, but uh, the Hamilton District Labor Council, I'm told, uh, the uh, elementary teachers, uh, local uh, Hamilton for Center for Civic Inclusion, Environment Hamilton, a lot of folks are going to be with you.
1: Yeah, so far, I think on the Facebook event, there are at least around 1300 people who are sort of interested in going or going. And so it looks like it's going to be uh, quite a few folks that will show up. And there are lots of allies that are interested in participating in this. And to be honest, uh, Pride was the one that put in the application, you know, to get the permit for the forecourt. And we've been sort of doing some of the framework stuff, but a lot of this has come from outside organizations wanting to all get together and do something to show support and solidarity for the community.
0: Cameron, it's been a rough few weeks, uh, f- obviously for the LGBTQ community, but I think for the greater community as well because of some of the things that have happened uh, since Pride Week and since the, uh, the the flag raising, and you and I talked about it way back in those days too. That seems like it was so long ago now, but it wasn't really that long ago. Uh, talk to me about the way the community has has responded and rallied. Uh, in the last little while. I mean, we've seen a lot of that support on social media, but I'm assuming Pride Hamilton has seen this and and, and is feeling this. At least I hope they are.
1: Yeah, if I take my Pride hat off for a second and just give you my general observations, uh, this has been a really hard time. A lot of people have expressed that, um, you know, there have been um, real reduction. There's been a real reduction in the safe feeling that already didn't exist sort of in Hamilton for folks in the community. Um, through all this but what I'm starting to see too is a lot of community resiliency. I'm seeing a lot of people coming together. I'm seeing solidarity. I'm seeing uh, new friendships and new relationships emerging in the community. Um, What I'd love to see more of and I think a lot of the attention that's been been, uh, put on this issue inside the community is, hey, you know, which voices are speaking out here? Who gets to talk? I mean, it's great that I'm here and able to talk to you but trans, non-binary, youth, uh, you know, queer and trans, people of color, um, two-spirit folks, you know, how are we going to bring them to the center of this conversation? And this is a long overdue conversation in our community. And so what this situation has brought about is a way for us to reflect about how we talk to one another and how we make sure that everyone gets a seat at the proverbial table that we can make sure whatever the outcomes are from this that everyone can get behind them and that um, there's broad support
0: how do you do that and, and again i'm asking you just as a citizen here as, as an observer as somebody who's watched what's going on and certainly experienced some of the things that have gone on in the last little while uh that's it, it's i think a lot of people are like minded and, and want to attain the same sorts of goals that you've just described here how do you do this how do you what's the first step what do we need to do here because i don't think we're there yet
1: No, I think there's a lot of healing that has to happen. I think we have to build capacity. And I think we have to, everyone has to be more open and be willing to be held accountable. So, you know, I've got lots of privilege and access. So people turn to me to ask questions. But what can I do better to say, hey, pass the baton to someone else? Let this person speak. Let this person speak out when they're ready, right? Mm -hmm. So I do think that it's important to acknowledge that not everybody wants to. I'll be taking a public position right now because there are a lot of safety concerns about what uh, what that means for them and um, the kind of attention they might get. And so I think we have to build capacity internally amongst all the different communities that make up the two spirit LGBTQIA plus community. Um, but there still needs to be time to heal from what happened. Um, what's been the aftermath of this has been. I would say, you know, a lot of attention, um, but not a lot of time to process. So one thing that's happening is this rally, which I think is a good opportunity for folks to come together. And I think though we're also planning, Pride's also planning a uh, debrief on the 24th for members of the community and allies who are at Pride, to talk through some of these things and, and perhaps come up with some outcomes and begin to frame how we might have more conversations like that. Where's We're not that? the only ones doing it, so other groups have already started having those kinds of debriefs and conversations.
0: Have you had those, uh, those initial conversations about organizing that, uh, that meeting on the 24th? Yeah, we have had
1: those initial conversations. It's going to require a lot of work from lots of folks in the community to pull off something like that to make sure there are safe spaces and that there's support for people who are feeling traumatized, um, but there's still an open way for us to discuss you know, some of the things that um, an organization like Pride should consider um, in planning for Pride 2020. Some of the things we should talk about that came out of the event. And then what do folks want to see as outcomes from what's happened?
0: There are different opinions. And then you and I talked about this, I think, the first time. It was just after the, the, the terrible incident in, in Gage Park. Uh, it, it's very difficult for one person to speak with one voice for for the, those the many communities that you've just referenced here, uh, which I guess really underscores what you were talking about a few minutes ago. That it's important that that everybody who who feels the need to be part of this should be part of that discussion.
1: Yeah, and it's, you, you it's can't just far- single
0: out one or two people and say, "Here, these people speak for the community."
1: Yeah, I certainly don't, and I'm you know I'm wearing a few hats here, and I realize that that makes it uh, makes it easy to sort of reach out to me. But that's one of the things the LGBTQ Advisory Committee said when it put that uh, motion forward on May 15th, is that, you know, we don't represent everyone. The process that got us here isn't representative. And so I think there's been a lot of acknowledgement already that this is a problem. Now it's time for us to do the work to begin to solve that problem. I don't have a quick and easy answer for how that happens because it's not up to me. It's going to be something that everyone has to come together uh, at the same point and say, hey, we're, we're comfortable with this kind of a process to get there. Because the longer we wait to address that really big systemic issue, um, you know, the weaker our community will get. So we need to have that internal strength by having everyone feel like they're part of the conversation. And that's just not where we are right now.
0: It's interesting. Uh, you and I had that discussion just around, uh, well, the advent of of, flag, or, uh, of Pride Week and, and, of course, the flag raising. And I know that you and the advisory committee expressed some concerns, uh, not just about that, but about a number of other things to do with the committee itself. Uh, and that seems to have got lost in all the other events that have happened over the last little while, but it's still something that, that I know that you want to see addressed um some major issues there, both the composition of the committee, the size of the committee the the influence that committee should have uh in the community and with city council as well those are those are issues that have to be part of this discussion I would think
1: well, I know the LGbtq advisory committee is continuing to work on that, and the way that uh that committee is set up is that it meets monthly, so that process unfortunately is going to take a while to resolve because you have to get drafts of motions approved, those approved motions then have to be accompanied by a report and that report has to be approved and then sent up to the next committee right and then off Mm -hmm. eventually to gic and council for their approval um... in order to get those things happening so i think that there's a bit of a road there but that is something that has gotten lost in this process but uh... the lgbtq advisory committee is meeting next week on july sixteenth and then they're having a working group meeting on the twenty-third so those things are moving along as quickly as they're legislatively allowed to essentially Um, And, uh, of course, all these committees are volunteers, and volunteers are running all these things. I mean, I think that's something that does get lost in a lot of what's out there, is that Pride is entirely volunteer-run, the LGBTQ Advisory Committee is entirely volunteer-run, and many of the people involved in these groups and many other groups uh, in the community are volunteers. And so this is being done on the backs of things they already have going on and kind of on the side of their desk. So... That that plays a role here, and that's a big part of where there's an imbalance in power, like between entities who have lots of paid staff, or a city, or other other groups who are professionalized.
0: Uh, Saturday, uh, this uh, is going to be going on, as we mentioned, for a few hours, just around the middle of the day. Uh, in all likelihood, there's uh, likely to be another set of people there that maybe are not as supportive, and I, I'm using the term advisedly because, I mean, I'm. Uh, uh, we we don't want to get into confrontational aspects, but uh, are you concerned about that, that there may be other people there that uh, are going to be less than enthusiastic about your presence there?
1: There's probably nothing I'm more concerned about right now than the safety of our community. It's on my mind every day. Um, my own personal safety, safety of people I know, safety of people who are much more marginalized than I am. So, yeah, it's something I'm concerned about. And it's something that I know folks helping to organize the rally are thinking about. And so just like um, rallies in the past that have happened in relation to Pride, there will be volunteers there, rally marshals, who will be trying to do the best they can to watch out and look out and diffuse tension and those kinds of things.
0: And, and hopefully, you know, this is going to be a much ado about nothing. We'd like to think that nothing will happen. Just the past experience indicates that uh, that's a possibility. And, and I'm hoping also that the people that are going to be involved in, in not just the rally itself, but uh, that are going to be there as observers, are going to be cognizant of that too. And uh, that's certainly something that we're going to be looking forward to, and hopefully it's it's not going to happen at all. But it has been something that that has to be a, a very strong concern, I think, for an awful lot of people. Uh, that idea about safe spaces, that idea about public safety, that idea about being able to walk down the street uh, without being jeered at and without being insulted, and, um it's, it's one of the things, I guess, that that a lot of us were concerned about. We've heard some stories, and you've related some stories, and I've talked to other people uh, over the last couple of weeks, uh, Cameron, that have, uh, have been able to express uh, uh, some longstanding issues. Uh, and that's one of the points I made uh, yesterday when we were talking about this on the program, that uh, I know that a lot of the discussion seems to be centered around the flag raising and what happened at, at Gage Park. Uh, that wasn't the beginning of the problems here. That simply exposed some longstanding problems, didn't it?
1: Yeah, a lot of people in the community have been speaking out through social media to tell stories. I know that just Dakota Langtree has been doing that and talking about some, some things that have systemically happened. I know other people in the community have been telling stories about things that happened um, you know, in the 90s and, and, and uh, 2000s, uh, those kinds of time periods that led us to this place where there are, there, you know, we're kind of... We're kind of behind some history here, right? Um, there have been some tensions and issues. Uh, there was, you know, internal committees um, that existed and then were disbanded. And so there's a, there's a lot a lot of history here that I think, because of the precarity and the precarious nature of our community, um, we haven't really had the ability uh, always to deal with that. We've been been busy doing things like trying to plan a festival or trying to plan an event or trying to do something else or resisting something. Um, I think that it's something important for for listeners to realize is that you know when you have the privilege of institutionality, you're able to you know you're able to be insulated from some of these things, and you're able to be strategic. You're able to step back and say, "Hey, we want to do this." And there's less opportunity to be strategic when you're at the ground level, just trying to get uh, you know an event planned or trying to resist something or react to something. So I think this might be a chance for us to come together as a community and build capacity so we can take on some of these larger systemic issues.
0: You're going to be in front of City Hall. I've had a number of people from the LGBTQ community over the last couple of weeks question whether or not City Council themselves were were behind your initiatives and supportive of that. Uh, Do you share that concern, or have you seen anything in the last couple of weeks to to assuage some of those concerns?
1: That's a really tough, big question to answer, simply because City Council is, um, in some ways, um, a body that's, designed to do certain legislative things and not others i think that outside of i think that outside of city council my own personal feeling is that we have individual leaders in our community who can do more to signify that they're behind something um, to be specific about concerns the community is raising so i think that that's been something that's still quite lacking but um, beyond that Um, I think the focus needs to be on the community at this point. It needs to be on what the community can do to build resiliency and what the community can do to um, see outcomes achieved. Yes, I would definitely like to see um, our leaders speak out really specifically to the points that have been addressed um, in the community, the things that they've heard publicly, the letters they've received. Um, That's not going to happen, and I think it's something we have to accept.
0: Well, some have, some not so much, and some not at all, and that's that's unfortunate as well. Uh, we'll leave it at that for now. We're just about out of time. Cameron, as always, thank you so much for the time today. Uh, good luck with the, the rally on Saturday. I hope things go well for everybody involved, and uh, we'll stay in touch. Appreciate this today. Thanks, Bill. Take care. Cameron Croach, of course, from uh, Pride Hamilton. <laughs>
2: You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900
0: CHML. Appreciate our conversation with uh, Cameron Coach just a few minutes ago from Pride Hamilton. What uh, the, uh, the rally that's going to be happening in front of City Hall uh, this coming Saturday, uh, that'll be from about 10.30 to one thirty. by the way, if you uh, are inclined to attend. Uh, there will be people attending at the same time who probably don't want to see this thing become a success, and that's going to be a concern. We're going to get into that in a couple of seconds. Uh, because there have been some precautions that have been taken. Uh, city councils tried to establish a protocol for these sorts of events. And uh, that's getting mixed feedback, quite frankly, from citizens. Uh, I know that one of the yellow vesters was in front of the committee the other day talking about some things. But some other groups that have been using the forecourt for City Hall over the last number of years for other events are now concerned that uh, these new protocols may actually have a negative impact on their events as well. Brad Clark, Stony Creek Councilor, uh joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Brad, thank you for the time. Good to have you with us again. My pleasure, and thank you, sir. Uh, Just right up front, I'll ask you the same question I asked Cameron then. Uh, As a city councilor and somebody who's, quite frankly, uh, based on some of your comments at these meetings over the last couple of weeks, Brad, you've been pretty proactive in trying to find some solutions and and establishing some parameters here. Uh, Are you concerned that uh, that obviously two groups that may have different opinions on who should be there uh, are going to be there on Saturday? Is that a security concern for you?
2: Uh, It is a security concern. I have expressed in the past I I don't want anyone to get hurt. Um, So uh, ideally the police will again have this kind of a no-man's zone in the middle uh, to try to keep the the two uh, competing protests apart. Um, And we're asking everyone to be civil, peaceful, and, and respectful. Everyone has the right to assemble. Everyone has the right to protest nobody has the right to incite violence and nobody has the right to incite hate and so uh, as long as everyone understands those rules um, it should be a successful Saturday for Pride.
0: The concern that I have had and, and I think a couple of you uh, council colleagues talked about this the other day too, uh, given the fact that okay there's people one particular mindset here and of course there's, uh, there's the other on the other side here and Pride and and the number of supporters and by the way there's some great community support groups that are going to be there as well but there is another element here that we haven't talked a whole lot about and those are people that just love to stir things up uh and and they they're going to show up there and you know and 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 again i'm not so sure that they're just stuck with any political ideology but they're going to be there uh which adds to the concern and i think the angst that a lot of people are having right now uh, that just like to agitate and would actually do something like that so uh, i know that as you mentioned there was kind of a, a a safe zone that was set up before and I know some people felt uncomfortable about that, but it might be, at least in the short term, the best, uh, the best way to approach this sort of thing.
2: I think it is, and I think you're correct. There are individuals that would deem themselves to be uh, volunteer security or deem themselves to be vigilantes, um, none of which is tolerated in Hamilton. So the police um, will enforce the law, um, and anyone that gets violent will be dealt with by the police But at the same time, the city of Hamilton will be monitoring for any individuals that are inciting hatred or inciting violence against an identifiable group. And if we can identify that person and gather that evidence, then we will seek injunctive release to prevent prevent them from coming back onto the forecourt and protest in that manner.
0: Brad, you had a wholesome discussion the other day at the committee meeting about the security itself, uh, and my understanding is that you're not adding more cameras, no CCTV cam, but you are going to enhance the ones that you've got, uh, and a couple of other things that have been put in place there. Are you comfortable with the moves that the city's uh, moving towards here?
2: Um, on the security side, with regards to the cameras and the enhancement, absolutely. Um, I think we should be doing that relatively quickly, um, getting someone on staff that uh... is a security investigator that would assist the city of hamilton in these situations uh... would also be very helpful and certainly be helpful in us developing further security protocols for 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 the city uh... with regards to the proposed protocols nothing has been approved yet um, it was in essence approved in principle and moved forward for consultation mm-hmm. uh... there are a number of things in the protocol that um, Uh, frankly, I thought went a little bit too far. Um, And I specifically ask that uh, the city manager and the staff uh, make sure that they're reaching out and consulting with all of the different associations and different groups, uh, unions, everybody, so the broader public has an opportunity to comment on this new protocol that's being developed to ensure that, that we can... I I think we can find consensus on what we would all agree would be important things to have in that policy and areas where we're crossing the line and, and impinging on people's freedom we can remove.
0: Yeah, and I mean, some of these things, I, I don't want to say no-brainers, but they seem pretty obvious. Uh, uh, prohibited from engaging in any activity that creates a nuisance, that interferes with the use and enjoyment of the space by other people, engaging in riotous, boisterous, violent, threatening, or illegal activity, or using profane language. I, I, I don't think you're going to get too much pushback on that, at least you shouldn't anyway. But we've heard from some groups, including people like the Sexual Assault Center and others, uh, Take Back the Night, and uh, these sorts of organizations, that also use that space. Uh, and some of the other ones here that I'm sure you've heard some pushback on too, things like use of generators is banned, use of electrical outlets is banned, uh, distribu- distribution of food and beverages, uh, things of this nature. Those those are things that are sometimes staples in a lot of these other events that are happening in the forecourt. So uh, I, I think it's in, in very important for for you to get some feedback on this before you actually start carving these things in stone.
2: And, and we, uh, the General Issues Committee, did vote or that consultation so that we know that that will be happening and we'll be consulting with many of the groups and and i agree with you that there are some things in there and i and i'm not trying to disparage staff staff looked at it and tried to provide a breadth of ideas that the council could consider um and some will make the final cut and others we will agree that, that well that's not necessary it's it's ha- Food, for example, that type of thing has happened many times, sometimes with the city actually running those events on their own. Yeah. So we have to make sure that we're consistent with what we're allowing the city to do as well as um, uh, anyone that's wanting to, to encourage some civic engagement.
0: Brad, right, I've had a number of uh, questions about this protocol and the, pro- and, and, and the process that's in place right now, even currently, even before you mm-hmm. do these modifications to it. Uh, about about you know permits etc like that and uh, and how those things are vetted uh, could you walk us through that because a lot of people are saying how did these guys get in there in the first place I assume they follow the same protocol that everyone else has
2: City council has adopted and has maintained a policy of not requiring permits uh, for protests um, at city hall uh, and the primary reason for that is that many times the protests, or demonstrations, if you will, are organic in nature and and really come up relatively quickly. And we felt that the permit process and charging fees for having that opportunity um, was just too prolonged a process, and it really does impinge on freedom that most people have with understand is their charter right to assemble and a charter right for freedom of expression. Um, so we, ha- we are not requesting permits and we are not um, requesting uh, or charging any fees for it. So what's, what will be happening uh, uh, this weekend, uh, there's, there's no permit process in place. It's something that staff may want us to look at, but I don't think Council has the appetite for that. I think Council is really trying to balance the people's right to assemble and peacefully protest um, against the risk of violence and against the risk of, of those who are hate purveyors.
0: Well, and we've seen that happen. Your point's well taken. I I can remember one that, as you mentioned, rather organically, just kind of I I almost characterize it as as a pop-up demonstration. It was after the provincial government canceled uh, the the basic income program and a number of groups uh, that were impacted by this. And even a few politicians uh, jumped on board there and and had a bit of a meeting in front of Hamilton City Hall. So I, I know you don't want to discourage that sort of activity. That's important. But I, I know that one of the concerns you shared at council some weeks ago right now uh, is the fact that, you know, how do you how do you vet this? How do you make sure that the—I you know, don't want to say the right people are there, but when you have violence like this and people that are inciting uh, violence and people that are, are making comments about, and as, even as you mentioned the other day at the meeting, uh, you know, hurling insults and, and, and derogatory terms towards Muslims and, and LGBTQ members and others like this, um, I, I understand that freedom of speech is, is one of the hallmarks of our society, but at the same time, uh, how do you maintain the standards?
2: Well, and and the the freedom of expression, it, according to the Supreme Court of Canada, is not an absolute right. People cannot say whatever they want, any time they want. Um, point in fact, the, the old metaphor, you can't stand up in a movie theater and yell fire when there isn't a fire. That's inciting uh, uh, violence and, and risk of injury. That, that you're not allowed to do that. The law has, is very specifically and very prescriptive that inciting hate against identifiable groups or inciting uh, violence against identifiable groups um, does not fall under freedom of expression. So we're fine with people coming and protesting. The entire council has agreed on that and has for many many years, decades back. Um, where we're going to to draw the line is with a protocol and policy that very clearly stipulates what is not permitted and then we will use injunctive relief which is going to the courts to seek an injunction against anyone that we find is has crossed that line and i think that is the correct balance against people's right to assemble and protest Against um, uh, the the other side of the coin, where people begin uh, hurling insults, demonstratively telling Muslims to go home, to go back to your own country, and and much more nasty things that I can't say on radio, um, we w- we will not tolerate that. We will not tolerate the attacks on our LGBTQ community. Um, so we're going to create a policy that is very clear. Everyone understands it. And then if groups or individuals begin to cross that line, then we have something that we can fall back on and act.
0: One of the criticisms we've heard about this, and I understand that you're still formulating this and staff are working on this, is that that's what, well, as one person indicated, a reactive uh, policy. In other words, after they do something, okay, here's what's going to happen to you for doing that. Uh, They want to see prevention. Uh, I'm not quite sure exactly what they were trying to get at here or just how you can do that. Uh, you, I don't think you want to go to the extreme where you're going to have so many security staff there, whether it's police or others uh, there, because that that's kind of going too far the other way, is it not?
2: Uh, it is, uh, and it's it's that pendulum. You know, you're basically implying that pendulum that swings left or right, and so we're trying to be balanced. We're trying to keep it right in the center. Um, so, uh, what the staff have come up with, which I support, is our our signs that would be uh distributed op- on municipal properties that very clearly acknowledge our zero tolerance for hate uh and racism uh and and what the rules are so we're going to promote in advance that we're not going to tolerate it i think there will still be uh, protagonists uh there will still be prov- provo- provocateurs who who want to push the envelope for whatever reason and and if we have these policies in place then we can go to the courts and we can deal with it and in a legal manner, uh, which without infringing on people's rights
0: there has been criticism of Hamilton City Council as well and, and I, I don't want to get into individuals here but the a number of the criticisms have been directed at the council as a whole uh, notwithstanding the some some of the individuals have been singled out on this uh, do you feel as if that's warranted do you feel as if council is, is characterized by some people is not doing enough and is not being as supportive as, as they could have been in this situation
2: i think it's a, um... i think it's inappropriate for people to assume or impugn motives to counselors who were silent uh... there was a number of counselors who spoke up at the meeting when i proposed the motion uh... with regards to the injunction uh... and there were others that were not speaking and that, and that is not unusual i mean uh, if if we had sixteen people around the table speaking on every issue those meetings would go much longer so historically uh, counselors have not spoken up uh, if someone else has spoken to the item in a manner that they would agree with. So their silence, in, in essence, uh, provides um, uh, agreement. Um, on the decorum side, uh, uh, the decorum side was uh, we, we. It was not council's finest moment. Um, it's not necessary to to provoke um, uh, citizens in the gallery. It's. Um, when members are called to order, they should be coming to order. Uh, we have to demonstrate respect in order to earn respect. Uh, and sometimes our passion in the debate gets in the way of that. And we have to be reminded that that you know it's a privilege that we have, but we have to show respect not only to our colleagues but to the general public, and then we earn that
0: respect back. Your point's well taken. I mean, one of the more frustrating things, I think, for people that watch or even the live stream uh, of council meetings or committee meetings, for that matter, too, is, is to have, as you say, 15 or 16 people saying the same thing over and over again just so they can stand up and say, yeah, I spoke on this. Uh, it's, it does waste time, and you're starting to think, okay, you're not bringing really anything new to the conversation. And then Councillor B, who just said something, Councillor A has got to come back and and, and reiterate what they just said. So you're, it's it it does get to be a very frustrating situation. Uh, so I understand that, but at the same time, we've got a very frustrated and I think a very hurt community right now. Uh, and when people are of that ilk, they tend to, to lash out. And I guess what they're looking for here is a is a common show of support from the councillors right now. Uh, the stuff that you've done over the last couple of meetings now with the the initiative that you brought forward... Uh, and uh, some of the discussions that you had uh, as late as just yesterday, of course, at the at the general issues meeting, uh, do you feel as if you're addressing these uh, these concerns and these issues uh, to to the point where we can actually start to build some bridges and some trust again? Uh,
2: that's my hope. Um, I, I council unanimously supported my motion for the injunction. Um, there was nobody that spoke against it. They're, they're, they, they understood very clearly that we were trying to create find the ways and means within the law to actually help protect people while balancing it against people's rights to assemble and to protest. Um more recently they unanimously supported the the motion that I brought forward to to um, have our city solicitor meet with the police and the crown to ask that uh when people are charged with uh acts of violence on on you know, the one in Gage Park where the, the fella used the helmet to hit somebody, um, that they uh, attach conditions to any bail or attach conditions to any parole that would ban them from the City Four Court. So we are proactively. Uh, and reactively trying to deal with the issues as they come forward. I think Council is 100% united against hate. They're 100% united that the LGBTQ community should be able to have their Pride event uh, without any any protests against it and without any nasty, hateful, uh, disparaging, uh, quite vile commentary um... they should be protected from that and and so we're doing everything we can to ensure that there's balance and people do have the freedom of expression they do have the right to express themselves they don't have the right to incite violence uh... against the lgbtq community or any racialized groups they do not have the right to incite hatred and so we're drawing the line in the sand and 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 making sure that the public understands this
0: Brad, thanks, as always, for the time today. Uh, here's hoping that things go well on Saturday uh, for uh, the people that are, are trying to make a statement here and uh, that uh, we can move forward, and this might be a good first step to get us in that direction. Thanks, as always. Appreciate your time thanks, today. Thank you, Take care. Stony Creek Councillor uh, Brad Clark.
2: You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML.
0: Right now, as we've talked about many times, of course, we have an election coming up here in October in uh, Canada. Uh, And we know that uh, there are foreign entities who uh, do have a propensity for wanting to get involved in uh, foreign elections uh, and have an influence on them. We certainly saw that in the last U.S. election. The Mueller report was very clear on that, despite what you might hear from some people who probably haven't even read the report yet. Uh, We know that uh, that foreign entities had a, a large influence in the Brexit vote that happened a few years ago. And we see the turmoil that's still going on because of that. So we want to avoid that sort of thing happening here in Canada. Uh, there are concerns mounting already about foreign actors getting involved in meddling in this election coming up. Uh, the government says they've got a plan or at least a protocol in place that they hope is going to uh, deter those sorts of activities. Joining us to talk about this is uh, Stephanie Carvin, Assistant Professor of International Affairs at uh, Carleton University. Uh, Stephanie, great to have you on the program again. Thanks so much for the time today.
3: Hey, I always love being on the show.
0: Let's uh, ask you about this right up front here. This is called the Critical Elections Incident Protocol, big name Uh, for a big responsibility. Have you had a chance to look this over? I assume you have. Uh, Is is this going to do the trick? Is this a good first step? Where are we with this?
3: Well, you know, that's a really good question. And there's a a lot of uncertainty as to just how it will work and how effective it will be. But I think we should look at it as a positive first step, Um, simply because we have been looking at, as you said in the introduction to this segment, uh, year, you know, year after year, really since twenty, uh, you, you know, even before the twenty sixteen election, um, different kinds of Russian influence in um, in the elections that we've seen in other democracies abroad. And Canada, I think, has been looking at this with a bit of a wary eye and trying to figure out what to do. And one of the reasons. I think the problem was exaggerated in the United States in 2016. Was that there was no protocol at all, right? Because no one had really anticipated uh, the the kind of interference that you know we now know existed.
0: And that was so, the, that was part of the frustration, wasn't it? Because I, yeah. I, I know that security officials down in the states knew that there was something going on, uh, and and their protocol seemed to be that the president simply told Putin, "Don't do this anymore." Uh, there didn't seem to be a whole lot else. There, there was a very little safety net there, was there?
3: Yeah, exactly. And I think part of the problem is no one really knew how to respond to this kind of threat because, you know, is speaking up a kind of electoral interference? Is it, you know, what does it mean when um, you have these different kinds of, you know, kind of organizations put in place that, um, you know, are tasked with the job of actually monitoring the different kinds of uh, interference that are there, but then when it comes to you know actually having to speak out and say, well, actually you know a lot of the Twitter stuff we're seeing is now a kind of um, you know it has has reached a certain level of activity. You, there's no one in place or there's no set procedure where you can get everyone on board and say, okay, this is what we will do if we detect a certain level of interference or if there's a certain incident, et cetera, et cetera, to go forward. And I think that that's really one of the things that handicapped the election is that the intelligence services did have a pretty good idea of what was happening but had no way to come forward with that information and then the political leaders kinds of things also recognized that they didn't actually have um you know they weren't sure if they could intervene and and were unfortunate things that happened so I think that basically the Canadian government has looked to see what happened. It's also, I think this is important to note, it's been consulting with its allies. So there's a center that's been set up in Helsinki, Finland. It's called the Helsinki Center of Excellence on Hybrid Threats. And so, what it is? It's a joint European Union and NATO project that tries to bring countries together to discuss the various incidents that have happened, and have also created, you know, kind of best practices. One of which is to have a plan in place, which is basically what this new Critical Incident Protocol
0: actually is. Where do they begin? I mean, this the enormity of this problem here is is just overwhelming. It's not just because uh, I think initially back in 2016 when they started talking about uh, foreign governments, you thought. Know, well, this is what is this vote tampering? I mean, what do they do? There's so many different things, false news stories uh, that that can direct people's attitudes and, and the way in which they vote. Uh, you know, the, the, it the, it runs the gamut, really, of where to go. Uh, the, the really, it, it's it's there's got to be some sort of a, a I guess, a, a checklist or something to look for. But boy, as soon as you think, okay, I just look for this, then something else pops up, and you have to make an evaluation about that.
3: That's exactly right. So I think one of the issues here is that you have. Um, you know, in the Cold War with regard, you know, if we go, if we go way back to the Cold War, you know, we often heard the, the, the idea of salami tactics, right? That, you know, there's the idea, okay, Russia, if you invade this country, we're going to respond. Well, Russia didn't you know, respond by invading a country or not, they, you know, would take off little slices of different things. And by the time, you know, you kind of recognized, you realize they had effectively the whole salami, you know, but they'd only taken it one slice at a time, Um, you know, never doing anything to prompt a major action. And so you're right. So I think if you say or declare, well, we think these are the kinds of actions where we will react, then, you know the kind of foreign actors that get involved in these kind of campaigns, they can work around that. And I should say, it's not just Russia. We've also seen uh, Saudi Arabia, Venezuela, and Iran in particular kind of um, getting involved in these uh, disinformation campaigns, although not to the same extent and certainly not to the same level of sophistication.
0: Well, maybe we should just uh, get in a little bit into the into the protocol that's been established here. There is a, a national security uh, committee that has been set up here, yes. uh, a panel that's uh, made up of... Uh, Uh, the Clerk of the Privy Council, the National Security Intelligence Advisor, Deputy Ministers in the Justice Department, Public Safety Department, and Global Affairs Department. Uh, Sounds as if uh, uh, they've got the right people at the table.
3: I think so. I think, you know, one of the things that, uh, makes, puts Canada in a good position is, you know, whatever you think of government, at the end of the day, we do have a neutral civil service. So these individuals will serve whatever government gets elected. Uh, you know, the clerk of the Privy Council, the National Security Intelligence Advisor. I mean, these people will change over time, but generally speaking, they, they tend to stay in place. And, you know, they're not affiliated with any party. And I think, you know, one of the things I'm actually concerned with is that, um, you know, they actually, you know, what is the threshold at which they will actually speak out? And they had a press conference yesterday where they basically said that threshold will be very, very high before they actually come out. Like something very serious must have happened before they've actually come out. But well, we don't really know what those thresholds are. But I think, you know, the good news with the committee, as you say, the clerks of Privy Council, the National Security Intelligence Advisor, and then the various deputy ministers, these are experienced um sorry, not politicians, they're experienced civil servants, they've probably encountered difficult situations and difficult decision-making in their time in government. And so their experience is, you know, you're not bringing in some, some just kind of random people to say whether or not there's been some interference. And the other thing is, too, and this is important, there has to be unanimity. In uh, in in the declaration, so you know, like I said, if four out of the five agree and number five says no, then actually the committee won't come forward with any kind of announcement. So I think um, you know, there. I think the good news story of this is that they will have have to have been pretty confident in order to come forward with some kind of announcement. The downside is, is you know, how good are 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 these um, individuals at? actually, you know, agreeing on this, like, you know, what, you know, Mm -hmm. I think, and I think if you do see that kind of salami tactics that I just talked about recently, you know, will that hinder some kind of unanimity within the task force itself, or not the task force, sorry, the, um, uh, the the critical elix- election incident public protocol.
0: Well, it, which is why it's so important, to, as you said, to have context into this. Because you may see an incident that, uh, that this committee may decide, no, that doesn't meet the threshold. But if it was the third or fourth or fifth time that that, that something like that's happened, there's a pattern there.
3: Exactly. And I think that's what they're going to have to see and, and evaluate over time. So. Um you know, this is good. I mean, the good news is is that, you know, the, this committee is being advised by uh, CSIS, the RCMP, Communication Security Establishment, and Global Affairs, all of which are kind of probably keeping an eye on um, the election as, as we're seeing. So we do know there's these kind of coordinations in place. Um, the one thing that I would add, though, that I think is going to be a problem for for this committee going forward is that, you know, they've said that they're going to have to be foreign foreign um, they're, they're going to be looking outwards. They're going to be looking for foreign interference. If a Canadian engages in this, ag- this kind of activity, so let's say someone in their basement in Hamilton, I love Hamilton, so no no, no, no smack there. But, um, none, none
0: taken, go ahead. None taken, right.
3: Someone in their basement in Hamilton decides to engage in a bot campaign to spread misinformation, that is not going to be um, a, a threat that these guys are going to be commenting on, probably, because they're going to be looking at the foreign influence. Because once it's a Canadian, it becomes a freedom of speech issue. Right. So the problem is gonna be so what happens if you have some kind of hybrid thing where you have a foreign led campaign that is then amplified by Canadians or a Canadian campaign that's then amplified by foreign bots and can you actually tell the difference between the two? And that's the kind of thing I worry about. So it's not just a salami tactics that you know that Russia has proved itself to be very agile and very adept in this space, but also the fact that you have you know, these guys are going to have to sit down and make a decision. Is this a foreign influence operation, or is this a bunch of Canadians um, that are just kind of retweeting an opinion that they agree with, and is that something we can then uh, get involved with? So that's going to be a really hard thing, I think, for uh, this task force to to get involved in, and I think they will be very hesitant to make public comments on those kinds of activities. They might it, Where it's going to be a little bit more straightforward is if you have a foreign actor that... Um, engages, say, in a hack, you know, kind of like the Democratic National Committee servers yeah. were attacked. Yeah. I think that's going to be a more or less straightforward case. But something like a, like a disinformation campaign is going to be much, much harder for them to, to really comment on.
0: And we just actually just got some revelations just this week about some of that stuff uh it was disinformation misinformation actually about the 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 clinton foundation and about hillary clinton and a uh, number of uh, you know what they thought were nefarious things that were going on uh that initially uh this was according to it, uh, yahoo news and of course uh, from uh, msnbc Initially, they said, no, that's American bots. And it turned out, no, they were from Russia, but they were cleverly disguised. But the the damage had been done. That was three years ago during the election. And, of course, as soon as that stuff gets planted, and we've seen this happen all the time, uh, those that want to believe it, uh, it's, uh, you know, share, 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 share. And the thing just takes off like wildfire. Julian Assange even started sharing this one. So it was all over the place. And, boy, that's, you know, once the horse is out of the barn, how do you control that sort of thing?
3: That's a really good question. So I think this is where we have seen a lot more pressure on social media companies to start clamping down on this ability to just simply share in the way that um, you know that, that they could in 2016. You know, you could just kind of share uh, things uh, pretty easily. I think the way you can share now on on Facebook and uh, lesser extent on Twitter, but like it's it, it really being examined, is actually under a lot of scrutiny for that specific reason. Um, the way you can buy ads, the way you can target people has also been under a lot of scrutiny. And um, so this is why we have new regulations and rules, particularly here in Canada, with regards to how you can buy ads on social media and that they have to be deposited into a database. And the, and the companies that you know like Facebook and Twitter that sell these ads have to actually keep track of of how these um how who bought them and why and for what purposes. So that's these are all good important steps, but as you say it's like, you know, it took, you know, investigative reporters 3 years to figure out where a lot of these stories came from and how they spread and things like that. So this isn't something that, you know, we're learning on how these operations work but it takes a long time to to figure these things out. And so, you know, this is all part of the concerns that I have personally going forward into 2019. So, um, like I said, the good news story here is we have procedures in place. Um, We know that the government of Canada has been engaging in um, simulations and practices. They've brought in people from Europe, from that Helsinki Center that I just talked about, which is, you know, trying to understand the best practices. So they have been rehearsing these kinds of things so you know we're not walking into this like like newborn lambs we we understand and i think there's a certain level of expectation now among the canadian public all of this is a very good thing but at the end of the day if canadians are willing to click and believe on you know stories that aren't true but they want to believe them and they want to share and amplify them that's going to be a very difficult thing to stop
0: how i've got a minute and a half left here how difficult is it going to be stephanie to keep the politics out of this and i i understand these are civil servants that are doing the vetting we get that but, I mean, we saw that in the U.S. election, you know, Russia, if you're listening, uh, because that was shared information. We know that during the Brexit debate uh, that, uh, that they knew that uh, the Cambridge Analytic was involved in this and that there were Russian bots. But they thought, no, but they're on our side, so we're not going to really say anything about this. And we saw the result of that as well. So it, it's going to be very, very difficult, I would think, to I, – I, I'm not suggesting the public servants are involved in this. But once that information is disseminated, it becomes a political tool.
3: It does. I think the good news here is that, you know, there really isn't a pro-Russia party, maybe in the same way that Trump was a pro-Russia politician or that, you know, the Russians had a certain... Stake in in the Brexit debate and things like this, so there isn't that. I think the narrative. I think what I would encourage listeners to do is just be really careful of the kind of narratives that you see going forward. What they're they're not going to target any political party. I think the main concern is they're going to try and target the process. They're going to try and amplify a narrative which suggests that uh, the election is rigged, that it's unfair. Um, they're going to amplify and for you know like things that just get people really riled up, like pipelines, the environment, indigenous issues, immigration. Um, you know, concerns about people crossing the border, all those kinds of things, these are going to be the issues they target because Russia benefits when we're angry at each other and we don't believe that our democracy is working.
0: Stephanie, it's always a pleasure to get your insight into this. Uh, Thanks, as always. I'm not sure
3: that was a pleasure, but I did my best.
0: No, it was fabulous. Always (laughs) just great having you on here again. Take care. It's
3: always depressing, but thank you.
0: (laughs) Have a great day. We'll talk again soon.